Good evening, family. And I see you there uh, giving your offering. Would you be so kind to stand, to join me as we continue to give honor to God in our corporate worship? Reading God's word is such a privilege and an honor, so we want to do so, if you can stand, that is. I was having a little cramp on my leg earlier. <laughs> uh, it's the heat. This afternoon, I will be, I have the privilege, actually, of reading from Matthew chapter 16, that's where we've been, verses 13 through 20. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, that's page 17 in the back section of the Pew Bible. Amen? You have it? Amen. Let us go to God's Word. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thank God for his word. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you to ask you that this word that you have breathed out, you have inspired by your spirit, will now be breathed into us with grace and power and life and conviction and joy and humility, Lord. Help us to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As Alex said last week, we are doing a six-week mini-series on the church, uh, not because we're just pastors who feel like, hey, let's talk about the church, uh, but because Jesus talks about the church as we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel. We come to Matthew chapter 16, and we find here an important transition in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the first time, Jesus adds to his kingdom vocabulary. You'll recall that throughout we've been learning that Matthew is about King Jesus. And it's about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And in this chapter, he adds to the kingdom vocabulary, the language of the church. For the first time, he talks about the church, and as we're going to see, he means by the church, 
the institution, organization, and organism uh, of the church. That there is to be the establishment by his hand, by his power, of this thing called the church. Now this is a term that's found, this is the first time in the New Testament, but the first of 118 times in the New Testament. Uh, this is the first time Jesus uses this term. It's a very interesting term. Uh, a little Greek lesson for you here. The, the, the Greek term is ekklesia, and it's made up of two smaller Greek words. Uh, one means ek, meaning out of or from, and klesia uh, means to call. And so the church is made up of those who are called out of the world. Those that God has called by His grace and by His power have called out of the world and the idea of the term is that they've not just been called out of the world to be scattered here and there, but they've been called out of the world into the assembly or the congregation of God's people. This reminded me of Many years ago when our children were very young, we had six kids and, and four of them happened pretty rapid fire. Four that were about five and a half and younger. So in those days when we were in church, our kids would be scattered throughout the congregation and, and there were times when it was time for the Shoreys to go home and rather than go and find all my kids, I would simply say, Shoreys, come here. And the kids would, would come out of the crowd and into my presence. They would come out of the crowd and gather here. That's the idea of the word here. We have all been born into this world. We have all been born as sinners. We've all been born alienated from God. We've all been born doing our own thing, going our own way. Wanting our own way, wanting our own throne, wanting our own dominion. And God, by His grace, has called us out of the world and called us to Himself. And called us into the gathering of the church. And you could, you could make the case that the rest of the book of Matthew and of the New Testament, especially from the book of Acts all the way through Revelation, is... If not mainly about, it certainly is largely about setting up the vision and structure and mission of the church. Jesus is beginning here to teach us how he wants his followers to gather once he's gone. Because Jesus didn't stay. Jesus went back to heaven. He went back to the throne of God. And he left us behind. And he didn't want us to want to leave us behind scattered and in disarray. And so he said, I'm going to build my church. And the New Testament is all about the planting and the strengthening and the establishing and the building and the multiplying of churches that are created for His glory and for our good. Now, what we're talking about here is something that I suspect creates at least a measure of discomfort in many of us. 
One of, one of the things that is very unpopular in our day is the idea of the church. Is the idea especially of the institutional church. Haven't you heard people say this? I believe in Jesus, but I don't need or want the church. Right? Believe in Jesus, but I don't get into the institution of the church. And, and I suspect that for one reason or another, most of us in this room have had moments when we weren't sure we wanted anything to do with the church. How, how many of you have had at least a, a bad or a disappointing experience in a church? Look around, folks. Keep your hand up just for a second there. All right, I think that's about 98% of us. All right. Now, let me get real vulnerable here. How many of you have had a bad or disappointing experience in this church? Some of you are lying. <laughs> or you're failing to tell the full truth. So let's just put it that way. You're withholding information. Look, the reality is that if you've been in the church for longer than 16 minutes, you will have had some kind of experience. I've been, just completed 37 years of pastoral ministry. I'm here to tell you, I've been hurt by, disappointed with, devastated by the church more times than I can count. And I've done the same to others. I have disappointed. I have grieved. I have failed the church. Probably more than all of you. When we think about the church, we're not sure what to think, are we? We're not sure what to do with it. And yet Jesus says to us, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He's saying to us, I didn't just come to save individuals. I came to save individuals to gather them into my church. Because, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So we're called to love the church. Even with all of its flaws and with all of its issues, with all of the mess. Maybe you've heard the story about the man who was stranded on a deserted island there for many years and after a number of years somebody came by and discovered him there and and was there to rescue him and and the man who had been deserted on this island wanted to give the rescuer a tour of the island so he led him around the island and the life that he had built there on that deserted island and he he showed him the home that he had built and then the gym that he had built and then the food shelter that he had built and then as they were walking down the path the visitor said what's that building over there? oh that's the church that I built oh it's very nice and they went a little further and the visitor said well what's that building over there 
He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Way too close to the truth, isn't it? Way too close to the truth. We can't even get along with ourselves. The person in the mirror. And yet Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, we talk much about our identity in Christ and well we should because that's at the heart of the gospel, who we are and what we have in Christ. But what we must come to realize is that our identity in Christ includes an identification with and in and as his church. That you, if you're going to be a biblical Christian, if you're going to be a New Testament Christian, you cannot have Christ without the church. You cannot have Christ without his bride. You cannot be a member of Christ's body without being a member of his body. This is what we are called to. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 17, You are the body of Christ and individually members of one another. Listen to that. That's your identity. You are the body of Christ. You are members of one another. That is reality. That's not an imperative. That's an indicative. That's not Jesus commanding us to be the body. That's Jesus declaring to us, you are the body. That is who you are. That is who we are. And so, let's think about it. That means when we talk down the church, when we insult the church, when we are down on the church, we are being down on ourselves. For we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And maybe you're the kind who is thinking, well, this would be cool if I could live back in the New Testament when the church was really cool place to be when things were happening and I'm not sure if you've read your New Testament if you've read your New Testament you haven't thought that way because the New Testament churches were a mess I mean these are the churches that were established by grounded by built by the apostles who lived with Jesus for three years and their churches were a mess Go to the church in Corinth and what would you find? Well, you would find sitting in the pew a man who just last week was sleeping with his stepmother. Go to the church in Corinth and you'll find people on Communion Sunday who were getting there early and getting a hold of the wine that was used and getting drunk on it. Go to the church in Corinth and you'd find people who were having meals together and gorging themselves before the poor people came so that there was nothing left for the poor. Go to the church in Corinth and you'd find people who were so confused in their doctrine that they were denying the resurrection. That doesn't sound like uh, 
pure, unvarnished, ideal Christianity to me. That sounds like a mess. Just like our churches. Go to the Galatian churches and you're talking about Christians who weren't even sure what they thought about the gospel anymore. They've been taught that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but you know what? Uh, maybe we still need to do something. We still need to add to this. Go to the Colossian church and you would have found that they were people who had really gotten into rules and they were kind of turning monk-like and ascetic-like and, you know, don't eat, don't taste, don't touch. Go to the Thessalonian church, you'd find out that some of them were so confused about the second coming of Christ that some of them had stopped working thinking that Jesus was coming that soon. They could just stop working and everything would be okay. You know, why bother working? Jesus is coming. Go to the churches that the Hebrews, book of Hebrews were written to, was written to. And what do you find there? The Hebrew Christians and churches, they were thinking about just abandoning Jesus altogether. Going back to the Old Testament, they, they actually preferred Old Testament sacrifices to the one and only sacrifice of Jesus. Go to the Christians and churches that James was written to, and they were people who got the gospel all distorted like. They were saying, hey, all you need to have is faith and works don't count. You can just live however you want because you're forgiven. These are the churches of the New Testament. So if you think our church is a mess, we're in good company. It's always been that way. And yet Jesus says what? I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You want to know what one of the greatest miracles of all time is? The miracle of the church. That 2,000 years later, after Christ, the church still exists. Despite the fact that we're all a mess. And the church has always been a mess. Talk about a miracle. Jesus keeps saving people. Jesus keeps bringing people into fellowship with him. Jesus keeps rescuing people from hell and sin and judgment, preparing them for heaven, and he does it through the church, and he builds the church with a bunch of messed up people. And he's been doing it for 20 centuries and more. It's amazing. One of the greatest proofs, there's a side note, just came to mind, one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Christianity is the church. How in the world can you explain the existence of the church 2,000 years later despite all the persecution, despite all the junk, despite all the sin, despite all the mess, here we are 2,000 years later and this is happening all over the world in hundreds of thousands of locations. To Jesus be praised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are some who want to stay away from the institutional church because the institutional church, the church that's organized and structured is so very flawed and full of sin and 
We've all been in those moments where we're tempted to stay away because of the mess that it all is. But I suspect that there's a lot of people who don't like the institutional church for another reason, and that is that when you start talking structure and organization, you start talking responsibility. You start talking expectations. You start talking accountability. And we Americans don't do well with accountability. We don't do well with corporate responsibility. We are rugged individualists. We, we like to do it ourselves. We like to do it our way. And Jesus is saying, sorry, it doesn't work that way. I will build my church build my church and as we'll see in a moment that church has organization and structure and all kinds to it uh, but we're, we're not sure we want that we like to freewheel it any of you familiar with Calvin Ball any Calvin and Hobbes readers here um, if you're not you're uneducated you're uninformed <laughs> You have some serious work to do on the educational process. Get the set, read them, devour them. I have all of Calvin Hobbes. I have read them at least a half a dozen times. This is serious, significant educational experience. You, you must read Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin is a six-year-old, and Hobbes is a stuffed tiger who, in the comic strip, is uh, a living, breathing playful tiger and Calvin and Hobbes don't like organized sports they like Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball is by definition a game without rules or at least rules that are permanent. The, 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 the only permanent rule in Calvin Ball is that you can never play it the same way twice. You make up the rules as you go along. So one time, uh, Hobbes says, no sport is less organized than Calvin Ball. And little Calvin, the six-year-old, wearing his mask and carrying a soccer ball, while Hobbes carrying a flag with a mask. And they have uh, croquet wickets on the, on the ground here. And they're running all over like crazy. And, and Calvin says, new rule, new rule. If you, if you don't touch the 30-yard base wicket with the flag, you have to hop on one leg. Now, you can only change the rules if you're in certain zones, unless you change the rule about the rule in certain zones. You get where this is going. And, and you know, Calvin sings on one occasion, other kids' games are all such a bore. They've got, they've got to have rules, and they've got to keep score. Calvin Ball is better by far. It's never the same. It's always bizarre. You don't need a team or a referee. You know that it's great because it's named after me. Listen to that. You don't need a team or a referee. There's a lot of Christians in our world today who are playing Calvin Ball. When it comes to spiritual things, they're avoiding the structures, the accountability, the rules, the obligations, the commitments. But Jesus says, I will build my church 
I will build it. There will be a structure to it. It's not just I will gather it or save it. I will build it. I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, so what is the church? What is the church? Let me tell you right up front, in case you're confused at this point, this building is not the church. You know what this building is? A building. That's it. Built, uh, the church is not made of stone, not made of brick, not made of mortar, not made of wood. This is not, this is not the church. And biblically speaking, this is not even a church. This is simply a building. And we need to understand that. You are not sitting in a church. You are sitting as the church. You are not sitting in a church. You are sitting among the church. You are the church. The church is wherever God's people are gathered. Well, let me, let me back up. Let me, let me give you a definition. And, and, and you're going to hear this. This is a long definition. Uh, it's long because I wanted it to be as close to complete as possible. I do not expect, we do not expect you to memorize this. Don't even expect you to write it down. I just want you to hear it. This is gathering together. And I had pastoral team help on this this week. So sent out a definition to the guys and said, hey, feedback to me on this. So this is, this is the final draft of this. Just, just take this in. I think it's going to be projected for us. The church, the church is the assembly of everyone in every age whom God calls out of this world to be Christ's disciples. The, the church, capital C, is the assembly, capital A, of everyone in every age whom God calls out of this world to be Christ's disciples, which, which assembly, in these last days, the last days are the days from when Jesus returned to heaven to when he comes back, the church is the assembly of everyone in every age whom God calls out of this world to be Christ's disciples, which in these last days is made visible in local assemblies of baptized, believing members who are committed sincerely to one, submit to the headship of Christ, two, worship the triune God, three, Obey Christ's teaching through His appointed and accountable pastor, teacher, leaders. Four, embrace true accountability. Five, practice communion and prayer. Six, serve one another in fellowship. And seven, make more disciples. That is the church. What we find in the Bible is that Jesus intends for there to be one church, capital C, that is made up of all believers, all sincere believers throughout all of time in every place who are being gathered one by one up into heaven who, who form the grand assembly of the believers 
that we will enjoy eternity with. That is the church. All believers throughout all of time. But that church, capital C, assembles in local gatherings, local congregations all over the world. And so the word church in the Bible is used a few times. Matthew 16 is one, the book of Ephesians a number of times is another. It's used in the capital C sense of all believers everywhere. But overwhelmingly, of the 118 times when the word church is used in the New Testament, probably at least a hundred of them are referring to churches like this. Christ is building his church by gathering his believers into churches where they do all those things that I just listed. This is God's plan for his people. Now, let's do this. Let's, let's start at the beginning or let's start at the top. Let's think about the head of the church. What does Matthew 16 and verse 18 say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those two very small words, I and my, carry immense theological significance. Those three little letters declare to us all kinds of truth. Jesus says, I will build my church. It is mine, Jesus says. It's not yours. It's mine. It belongs to me. I have redeemed it with my precious blood. I have bought it to be mine. This is my church. He is the head of the church. If there is an organizational flowchart of the church, you have Jesus on the top and all of us down here. He is the head of the church. It belongs to Him. Listen to the words of Scripture. Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 23 puts it like this. I want you to know, Paul writes, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and, and He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and 
for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Folks, this is what we would call in theology, high Christology. (laughs) This is lifting Jesus up. He is the head of the truth. Who is preeminent in all things? Tell me, who is preeminent? Jesus is. Jesus is. Who is the head of the church? Who do we crown with many crowns? Who? That's right. The power of whose name do we hail and praise? Jesus. Whose Lordship do we confess? Jesus. Before whose throne do we bow? Keep saying it. For whom and at whose pleasure do we serve? Jesus. To whom do we answer? Jesus. Whose word do we hunger for and obey? Jesus. Whose body and bride are we Jesus whose church is this Jesus he is the head of the church and we are all just members of his body we are what a glorious identity we are members of the body of Christ but we're just members we're pinkies and toes and fingernails He's the head. He's the Lord. He is King Jesus. And in everything, He has preeminence. That means in everything, He has first place. He has first place in everything. Now what is He building? He's building His church. What does that church look like? Well, if we read on through the rest of Matthew, as we're going to hear in the coming few weeks, his church has structure to it. His church has ceremony to it. His church is an institution. Not just an organism. It is a living, dynamic entity because most of you are breathing. The delay there indicated that what I just said was true. (laughs) Most of you are breathing. It is an organic, living entity, this church is. All churches are. But it is also an organization. And so as we read on in Matthew, what do we read? Well, we read that there is an initiatory ceremony in order to get into the church. Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations and do what? Baptize them. Baptize them. In order to 
And as you read that out in the New Testament, you find out that those who were baptized, Acts chapter 2, were added to the church so that baptism becomes this initiatory rite through which we publicly declare our faith in Christ, that our sins have been washed away, that we've been raised to a newness of life, and through which we are initiated into the church where we now commit the rest of our lives to serve Christ by serving His bride and serving His body. There's an initiatory right to get into the church. If we read in Matthew chapter 16, right after Jesus hears Peter's confession, what does Jesus say? Well, what he does is he establishes qualified official leadership in the church. He says to them, I tell you, Peter, verse 18, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He says the same thing to all the apostles over in Matthew 18, almost as if to make sure that we don't fall into the Roman Catholic error of elevating Peter above all the others as, as a pope. He says the same thing to all of them. The keys are given to the spiritual leaders in the church. And then we find out as we go through the New Testament that that is handed on to pastors and teachers within the church. And it has been handed on to this very day. So that when in the book of Acts, Paul and the other apostles established churches. One of the first things they did was to establish elders and pastors in those churches so that baptized believers could be taught all of God's word so that they could obey all of God's word. There are qualified official leaders within this. That makes it a, an institution. There's a ceremony to get in. Baptism. There are qualified leaders. There's a complete curriculum that has to be taught. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The church is where Christians gather to be taught everything that we find in the words of Christ and through his apostles and through his prophets. This is why we come to church as we are disciples. We're come, we come to learn. We come to hear Christ's word. There is a curriculum that needs to be taught. There's accountability that needs to be faced. In chapter 18, which we'll see in a coming message, we will see that when people who profess faith in Christ and are part of a church refuse to repent of sin in their life. They hold on to it and they, they refuse to humble themselves. There's a process of accountability within the structure of the church so that they are confronted, not punished, not hated, not rejected, but they are honestly, humbly confronted so as to restore them to obedience in Christ. And if they are not faithful in repentance, if they do not turn from their sin, then Jesus says we are to treat them no longer as part of the church, but treat them as tax gatherers and sinners, which is another way of saying as non-members of the church, as those who are on the outside 
looking in. There is a specific code of conduct that applies to those who are members of the body of Christ. And when that conduct is, is in a habitual, unrepented way, is violated, then there is accountability. And that's for everyone within the church. This is serious business. There, there is a, you'll read about it and we'll hear about it in Matthew 26. There is a ceremonial um, meal that we enjoy together. What do we call it? Communion, the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told to eat and drink often in remembrance of Him. How long? Until He comes. Until He comes. This is a church ordinance, a church institution. This is part of the institution of the church. We have this meal together and there is a mission to fulfill. Go and make disciples of all the nation. So what's the point? The point is this. That we are not thinking biblically when we think about the church if we think of it just as individual people. The church is capital C. It's all believers everywhere throughout all of time, both in heaven and on earth, already lived, now living, yet to live, who come to faith in Christ. That's capital C church. But capital C church is organized and it's structured in the life of local churches like this. And this is how Christ is building his church. And we must love the church as Christ loved the church, even if it is as messed up as we are. This is the calling that the head of the church places on our lives. He who has redeemed you from hell has redeemed you for himself. And living life for him involves living life for each other. For if we love Jesus, we will love those whom he loves. And he loves the church. And so I wonder as I close, um, I wonder how we're doing as a church. In Revelation 2 and 3, you may be familiar with that section. Jesus looks down on the churches, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and and he assesses them. He says, you're, you're, each of these churches, you're a lampstand. I, I put you there to be a light in your community, a, a light in the world. And, and he looks down and he, he assesses these local churches. And there were some things they were doing well. And there were other things they were not doing well. Some were in really good shape and others were in really bad shape. Some were faithful, others were lukewarm. Some were loving Christ dearly, others had lost their first love. Jesus assesses, I wonder what Jesus thinks when he looks down on Risen Hope Church. That's not meant to be anything other than a point of reflection for us. What does Jesus think? when he looks down, looks into this church. Are we being faithful to our calling? Are we living lives pleasing to him? 
Are we building each other up in the faith? Are we loving whom Christ loved? Or are we bearing grudges and holding bitterness and pushing people away? Are, are we on mission like he wants us on mission? Are we making disciples? Those aren't meant to be rebuking questions. They're for us to search ourselves. I will build my church, an organism to be sure, living, breathing, dynamic, powerful for all of its flaws and for all of its mess, but an organized organism, one with structure and order and accountability and mutual care and responsibility all for the praise and glory of the one who is the head of the church, who is preeminent, has first place in everything. I don't know about you, uh, but as for me and my house, we will love the church. And as for me and my house, we will serve the church by God's grace die for the church I am so grateful for the lives of so many of you who love and serve and have proven by your lives that you'd be willing to die for the church may God unite us in a love for this amazing, messy thing called the church. May we love it like Jesus does. Let's pray. Come, O Lord, upon us. We are your church. You are preeminent. You are the head. We are the body. You are the king. We are the citizens and the glad and happy subjects in your kingdom. You are Lord, and we love you. Strengthen us and build us and establish us and grow us, Lord. Not so that this church might flourish, but so that other churches might be planted and flourish and grow so that we might multiply for the everlasting praise of King Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.